we are in an age where it is life and death mm. literally life and death to get effective information out there it saves lives the science hello and welcome you are listening to the science basement podcast a podcast for people who love all things science I'm your host, Eleana. And I'm your co-host, Katja. And this is the third and final episode of our three-episode mini-series made in collaboration with Cochrane Organization, the international charitable organization with the aim of promoting evidence-informed health decision-making by producing top-quality systematic reviews, which have now become the gold standard for evidence-based information. So far, we had wonderful conversation about COVID, about scientists collecting and organizing information. But today, we are talking about how everyone, all of us, regardless of our background, should collect and filter scientific information. We are very happy to be joined today by Jack Nunn, founder and director of the non-for-profit education organization, Science for All, and co-creator of standardized data on initiatives, Started a PhD researcher in the Department of Public Health at La Trobe University in Australia, and recently appointed to Consumer Network Executive for Cochrane. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will go ahead and maybe start with the first question, because I mentioned about the organization you are co-creator of, which is Stardit, uh, whose aim is to distribute information from initiatives of both academic and non-academic nature. So would you like to share a few words about it? Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much for, for having me as a guest today. And and yeah, I think you mentioned about uh, evidence-informed health information and, and, you know, Cochrane reviews being the, the gold standard. I think we're getting to a really interesting point in in human history where disciplines such as, as health, etc., we're, we're increasingly aware of the connection between environment and health. You know, the, the COVID pandemic being a very obvious example of human and non-human animal disease transfer. The issue we have as a species is that very often these disciplines are not talking to each other in, in kind of standardized ways. And a really clear example for me is, is something like air pollution. So I think the latest research suggested that last year in 2020, air pollution killed about 8 million people, I think. And if you compare that to something like COVID, arguably this is more of a priority for us to sort out. The issue with something like air pollution is, well, is this a health issue? Well, yes. Is it an environmental issue, which involves environmental researchers? Also, yes. What's the intervention? Well, it's probably education and educating the public about things they can do, policymakers, etc. So how can these people from these different disciplines have evidence-informed methods of collecting that data, designing the research, sharing the data, and, and knowing that the educational interventions are effective? And it's very difficult to answer those questions and certainly difficult to do that in an evidence-informed way. So the idea of standardized data on initiatives exists to help everyone in the world find and understand information about collective human actions, which we call initiatives. So it's an open access data sharing system and it's being developed to standardize the way that information about initiatives is reported across these diverse fields. And this includes information about which tasks were done by who and who's funded it and any impacts or outcomes. And one of the advantages it has over sort of traditional peer-reviewed public publishing is that in addition to the data itself being checked and anyone in the world able to contribute and check it is that you can also update an initiative sort of at every stage of the cycle from from planning and evaluation right through to reporting impacts so let's say you had a, a citizen science project 
to monitor air pollution and, and you learned that the intervention needed to be an educational project to help people understand things they can do to reduce their own air pollution actions. You can actually evaluate how effective that was. You know, that's something that even an organization like Cochrane struggles with, as does the United Nations, the World Health Organization, which is, okay, we've produced this information or this guidance, whatever you want to call it. How do we know it's been effective? And in sort of jargon term, uh, that's sometimes called knowledge translation. But in other words, you know, we've produced some information and shared it. We, we hope people have read it or listened to it in the case of this podcast. What effect did it have? And that's very difficult. What you're getting into there is sort of subjective experiences of, of reality, causation. Did listening to this podcast make you go and look up what style it was? That's very difficult to measure that kind of stuff. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think that the final thing to say about Stardit as well is that, you know, we're speaking in English language today, but of course, for something to work, it needs to work across multiple human languages. And more importantly, it needs to be machine readable. That is, you know, the data is structured in a way that means that machines can read it and machine learning algorithms can make sense of it because the amount of data we're creating as a species now, there's no one person in the world, there's not probably and even if every person in the world had a go at it we wouldn't be able to get our heads around it and see the patterns we need machine learning to help us so start it is machine readable and also works across multiple human languages and we've built the beta version in wikidata which is part of the wikimedia foundation and um, we're working with the wiki journals which are part of the uh, wikimedia foundation which are open access and free to publish in and we've built start it alongside that system the wiki journals are actually integrated into Wikipedia. So the articles from the wiki journals actually become Wikipedia pages that can be cited and referenced. And Stardot reports show who created it and how. And just to say, this is a beta version at the moment. It's a version where we're sort of going, well, here's an idea for how humanity can share important data in a standardized way. You know, what do people think? How can this be improved? So we've co-created it from the beginning. The entire process has been open. Uh, it's all free, open access. And, and the charity that I've started, Science for All, that is hosting the co-design process for Startit. So that's it in a nutshell. Hopefully that answered your question. It, it absolutely did. And that's a very cool initiative. And I see Katya is ready to ask a question, but I wanted to just highlight that what you said is really important because as you said, we have so much information produced and it's not possible to be able to trust everything we hear if we cannot have access and be able to check and reproduce the results. So with all this data collected, once it's made open, it will help also to confirm different ideas that have been produced based on this data and also uh, help trust more. And Katya, I'll let you now ask, ask your question. <laughs> yeah, well, there are so many interesting points there that I'd love to just like grab onto straight away. I really, especially I think the air pollution example is one that I hadn't really thought of before at all, but that you're so right in that it's, it's such a multidisciplinary question. I think it should be tackled in a multidisciplinary way. So very glad to hear that this project and initiative has been created that is kind of being made possible and accessible in a way that both the public and policymakers can kind of understand. And yeah, kind of what are the key steps actually required to follow for opening the information and how can this help the public understand and filter information? Yeah, I, I think before um, I answer that question, it's helpful to just get into the language. I mean, a very long time ago, I did an, an English degree and, and you mentioned, you know, the public and policymakers. And I think it's really important to recognize these linguistic distinctions that we make. Some, you know, sometimes they're very helpful. You know, this person is an elected representative. This person works for this organization that has financial interests in this research outcome. You know, these are helpful labels. When we're getting into labels like public and patients and 
Cochrane uses the label consumer to describe people who consume information. That might not be a label everyone self-identifies with. So what we need to do before we kind of answer the question of, you know, how do we talk to non-scientists or the public? I think it's really important to ask, what do we mean by those words? Because policymakers, really, they're us, aren't they? I mean, anyone can become one, hopefully, with the right enabling conditions of education and access, etc. And the same with elected representatives, you know, the government. That's us. That's us representing ourselves. So I think the language that I find helpful is expert and non-expert. So let's say the word scientist, for example. I mean, that word was coined in 1833 by an English reverend. And before that, we had the term natural philosopher to describe somebody investigating uh, the natural phenomenons of, of the cosmos. The interesting thing about the word philosopher is that you've got in there philosophos, love of wisdom. And I think what we have with the word scientist is someone who's involved with knowledge. That's great. And that's, that's very helpful. But we can probably all think of somebody we know who knows a lot and perhaps isn't very wise or vice versa. We need wisdom integrated into decision making. And that can be informed by, you know, information, knowledge, etc. And it's very important when we're talking about knowledge and wisdom to ask, well, well, who do we trust? Because really, this is one of the key things that came out of started in the co-creation process was uh, one of the people we're working with, Sandy Oliver, said something along the lines of civilization is based entirely on trust. Uh, without it, it can't really function. You know, we trust that the water that comes out of our taps is safe to drink. We trust to an extent what a doctor says. When we begin to appraise that information or critically appraise it, we're asking, can I trust this? And very often, it's very difficult to do that. I mean, in a practical way, you know, if you're using the internet and, and you have a health emergency and you put into your search engine of choice, I've got these symptoms, what should I do? There's a question there about what is the reasonable expectation of the person using that search engine that the information they get back is trustworthy? And certainly governments around the world have worked hard to improve this. And, you know, a few commercial search engines have done their best as well. But we're dealing with all of the knowledge of humanity online. And how do we filter that? And it's not an easy answer. So the idea of something like Stardit is that it creates metadata about information. So as well as being standardized data about who did this systematic review, who wrote it, who was involved, etc. There's also extra information there that allows people to critically appraise the source of it. You said something very important that I want to pose on, and it's about trust. What I have noticed being involved in science communication, uh, but also being a scientist myself in a diverse field, which is how the sun affected near-Earth environment and human activity in space and on ground, and I have seen that there is all this research going on in the field and in different fields. And then some scientists say one thing and some others say something different. And then the public is uh, found in the middle. And then it's the question of what you said, who used the right language that will pass their message to the audience? And that message might not be the more solid scientific result. So and then there is the conflict between the scientific community and the public loses trust. So for me, it's important that there are more such initiatives that open science to the public, collect information in a way that's understood and concise and in a language that most of the people can follow. And also policymakers, as Katya and, and you, Jack, mentioned, because they will make decisions, they will pass new regulations, which will be, you know, put upon the public and then the public might be happy or unhappy 
But if they trust, then they will accept it. But if they don't trust, then they they can't accept any restrictions and why they are important to be made for protecting the environment and our health and so on and so forth. And this pandemic really proved that. So I'm really happy that you mentioned this language and building trust and its importance. And Mm. I wanted to ask, how do you think the public can be involved in this? And will their involvement help their trust uh, to increase towards the scientific results and the scientific community? It's a good question. I mean, I think as a global citizen, we all have a responsibility to try and critically appraise the information we read and to try and teach the young people coming into this amazing world I mean, I'm old enough to remember no internet. It was rubbish. It's amazing now, all the things we can find out. But the real thing we have to teach everyone is how to ask a question. And sometimes that question is, can I trust this? How can I find out more? And I think just to link back to these linguistic divisions between public, expert, etc., is I would say that an expert is in the eye of the beholder. And on that note, there are many people at Cochrane and, and associated with this work who I consider to be experts in systematic reviews in participatory action research. And I don't consider myself to be an expert in any of these fields. My background is bringing the public and researchers together. And I try and do that in evidence-informed ways. But of course, some people might consider me an expert. I mean, I've just done a PhD in public involvement in genomics research. I'm only saying that as a caveat before I begin to answer this question is that I'm speaking here from my personal experience and everything I say in, in this podcast is it's really just my personal opinions. It's not representing what Cochrane, Wikimedia or Science for All, those organizations necessarily represent. It's just me as uh, Jack Nunn. With that said, I think to answer your question, as I said, everyone needs to be able to, to scrutinize this information. I mean, we, we have this tradition in, in a few English-speaking countries of April Fool's Day, you know, the 1st of April. And I like this day because it's probably the only time every year that most people try a little bit harder to critically appraise the news. They read something and they go, oh, that can't be true. We should be right, doing that yeah, every day. Yeah. We should be doing that every single day. You know, who's written this? Why? Why do they want me to know this? What don't they want me to know? Why haven't I read something about this? These are all very important questions. And Cochrane Reviews, the the systematic review process, does this in a very systematic way. I mean, when they're combining different kinds of evidence, there's, there's a very complicated process that effectively asks, is this an appropriate information source? May there be some bias in it? Effectively, can it be trusted? And there are issues, of course, with, you know, who funded the research, et cetera, the quality of the research. It's a very complicated area. But essentially, the question is, can we include this study in our analysis? Can we trust it? And that's great to a point, but then there's limits even in the work that Cochrane or the Campbell Collaboration or other organizations that do systematic reviews do, which is because they're limited by the evidence available, or if we'd prefer to use the word the data available, when does data become evidence? Well, that's an open question, isn't it? So there's issues here about what we don't know. For example, you mentioned about the climate and the sun. Let's take that issue of climate change and human actions contributing towards that. As far as I can understand, as a non-expert, when I read the news, all the experts on planet Earth, NASA or whoever, they're saying this is a thing. They're saying it's human action and we need to do something. Now, that's enough for me. Right, let's do something. There are some people who, for whatever reason, they don't believe that. That in itself requires some research. And, you know, that can apply to whether it's denying climate change that's caused by humans or vaccine hesitancy. I shared an office once with a woman whose entire PhD was looking at vaccination communication. There's whole areas of science or knowledge in terms of looking at communication and and communicating what we know. Arthur C. Clarke said communication is both an art and a science. And that's very true. 
But there's an emerging field that I think is even more important, which is called agniology, which is the study of ignorance. So epistemology is the study of knowledge. But there's different kinds of ignorance. There's that which we can never know. For example, what are people listening to this podcast thinking of me right now? Uh, I'll never know that. That's unknowable for me. But then there's things that we can know that we don't know. And sometimes we don't know those things because we haven't researched it. So if somebody says to me that there's no evidence of gender inequity in Australia, well, I could say, well, what research have you done? And they could say, well, we haven't done any research. That's why there's no evidence of gender inequity. Now, just because there's no evidence of something, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Sometimes it can just mean that no one's funded the research. On other occasions, we've done lots of research and we say there's there's no evidence. Is homeopathy a thing? No, we know it isn't. We've done a lot of research, you know. Are vaccines safe? Yes, by and large, all other risks balanced, they are, and we should be using them. You know, we have the answer to those questions. And I think very often journalists or other science communicators do a very bad job of separating the difference between there's no evidence of this because we don't have any data and we need more, and there's no evidence of this because we've done lots of research. And those are very different things. This culturally induced ignorance is a very serious issue. I'll give you two examples. The most famous one or the best studied one is, of course, the tobacco industry and their prolonged campaign of funding research to basically come up with alternate causes of cancers that you know weren't smoking tobacco. You can read all about that. There's lots of papers about that. But effectively, the tactic was we've got a lot of money. We'll fund research showing that smoking doesn't cause cancer and you know other techniques to discredit the people who disagreed with them. Another famous example is actually very relevant with the COVID pandemic was that of Tamiflu. Um, I believe it was Roche, the pharmaceutical company that developed Tamiflu. And this was actually from a traditional Chinese medicine recipe, if you like, from star anise, an extract from star anise. Now, Roche developed Tamiflu and sold billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of this to governments around the world. And Cochrane said, can we see your data? And Roche said, no. So Cochrane couldn't do a systematic review of the effectiveness of Tamiflu because Roche didn't release the data. And this is completely legal around the world. I mean, pharmaceutical companies can do studies, human trials, and they can choose which ones they publish and which ones they don't. The Roche example shows the limited evidence that governments have to choose from when making decisions during health technology assessment processes. I myself sit on an Australian Department of Health committee that looks at health technology assessment decisions, basically what health technology should we buy, what vaccines, what devices, etc. And we know from a Cochrane review that sponsorship of drug and device studies by the manufacturing company leads to more favourable results and conclusions than sponsorship by other sources. In other words, there's an issue if those with vested interests are funding research. And it's not just human health where this is an issue. We need to step back from health and see it in the bigger system too. For example, the chronic underfunding of environmental research doesn't mean the collapse of ecosystems won't change civilization as we know it. It just means we won't have the data to make the informed decisions about our next steps as a species. And this is what Science for All, the education charity, is trying to do. It's trying to teach people how to ask a question and how to get involved in shaping the future of human knowledge. There's a campaign called All Trials, which is looking to make it compulsory to publish in human trial data. And there, of course, are now clinical trial registries, although there are multiple clinical trial registries, I believe. There's an issue here in accountability to actually publishing that research. And of course, this is very important with the COVID vaccines. You know, we need all the data we can get. If people start hoarding it and not releasing it, we as a species can't critically appraise, is this effective? 
Cochrane persisted with the Tamiflu case and eventually did get the data. They did a systematic review, and you can read more about this online. I'm going to try and summarize it in plain English. But basically, the results were that Tamiflu was worse than placebo. No effect would be kind of similar to placebo, noting that the placebo effect is still an effect and sometimes quite a helpful one. The Tamiflu intervention actually had side effects that meant it was worse than placebo. This is according to the statistical analysis done by Cochrane. Now, this was only done after governments had stockpiled billions of dollars worth of this product. And going back to the Spanish influenza in the 1920s, we're not really in a better position now to deal with the next pandemic than we were 100 years ago, other than the internet and sharing information. And of course, our amazing vaccination programs around the world. Now, I'm not trying to say there's a you know, there are good guys and, and bad guys here. I'm just trying to say, if we want to save us from ourselves, that is allowing a culture which tolerates culturally induced ignorance because of financial or other interests, we need to do something about that. So peer review is a great way of doing it. Cochrane is a great way of doing it. But we also need to recognize the limits of these ways of working. So something like standardized data initiatives allows that kind of metadata about the systematic reviews, about other kinds of data to be published and updatable. And what we can also have is information about different people's interests. So this is where we have to loop back to the question about labels. So let's use the word stakeholder to describe different groups of people or groupings of people. We can group people into different groups of stakeholders, people who have a stake. So if you like, you know, we as a species all have a stake in not succumbing to an influenza pandemic. Within the human species, there are uh, subcategories, people who work for pharmaceutical companies, people who are professional researchers working for academic institutions, and the general public, if you'd like to call them that, and many more, of course. All of those different groups will have different interests. And the language that a lot of organizations like Cochrane or the World Health Organization, et cetera, will use is competing or conflicting interests. So the question here is, you know, does this person have an incentive for this knowledge to be public or not? And if you want to go back to the example of climate change, what's more likely a global conspiracy of every single climate expert on earth who are all in on it, faking data? Okay, that's hypothesis one. Or people with a financial interest in discrediting climate science, culturally inducing ignorance through research that's either funded with a financial interest or to discredit good quality research. Now ask yourself which one of those is most likely. Winston Churchill, I believe, said uh, a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth has got his boots on. And that's so true today, as we've seen over the past few years, deliberate misinformation campaigns can, can swing elections, referendums, and influence the effectiveness of public health interventions. Absolutely. We are in an age where it is life and death, mm. literally life and death, to get effective information out there. It saves lives. We can't treat this like it's a small side issue anymore. Medicine and health can't treat it like it's just their issue. Evidence-based medicine is a wonderful thing, but it needs to start talking to environment. It needs to start talking to agriculture, farming, fishing, all these things. You know, the One Health model from the veterinarian discipline was very ahead of its time in terms of looking at the earth as a system. And I think that's the systems thinking that we need as a species. And the only way we can have that to start off with is standardized data. So, we, you know, are we all talking about the same thing? Okay, great. Now we are. What are we saying? Yeah. How do we do that? 
that's the challenge we're trying to meet with Start It. Fantastic that you are facing that challenge since, as you outlined in all those reasons, so, so needed and kind of the increasing need for educating about critical appraisal as well, I think. Well, I've also, I mean, I've managed to touch on uh, political misinformation, vaccination, homeopathy, climate change deniers. So I'm likely to get quite a lot of angry messages now. So to anyone who's listening <laughs> who, uh, who I have upset your deeply held values and beliefs, examine and explore your emotional reaction to information you've received. There you go. Exactly. And, and one thing I want to like, because it's always also on my mind, and you mentioned it, Jack, is you have the scientific community, which has come to a consensus on some research results based on facts. And you can find most of that information directly from those scientists who publish their work and their data and try to understand what is going on. And then you have money that controls many things. And people tend to follow the um, people who will spread these conspiracy theories. They trust them more rather than the actual scientists. And I think it's important to bring that trust back to the public. And one of my questions is, how can we do that? Is it our responsibility to ensure that the information that gets released to the public it's very carefully investigated. And I said our responsibility, it's, I mean, the scientific community and the higher orders of the state, like the political system. So is it our responsibility to make sure that no misinforming or not properly supported information is released to the public, which might impede a little bit with the freedom of speech, of course? Or is it our responsibility as a state and a society to ensure that from the educational system and all the levels of the life that someone will follow, they have been equipped with what you said, a way of thinking, a wisdom. And that wisdom, at least as I said, comes from education. So that when people are given an information, they know how to look for the source, the data to the results, how do they make sense and how can trust? And I understand that not everybody can suddenly become a scientist and understand all fields of science. I don't. But at least if they are presented in a way that's in a language the majority of us speaks, then this will help. So mm. this is something to keep in mind, I, I feel. I agree. I think if I was to answer your question about, you know, how do we decide what information we should share, etc., I'd work backwards and I'd say what information shouldn't be open and why? And start from the assumption that we should be sharing all data, all scientific data, that is. I mean, we can get into genomics data and sensitive information and private information later on in the discussion. But if we're talking about, you know, things we've observed in different systems or different experiments, what aren't we sharing and why? And certainly there's something called the FAIR criteria, which stands for findable, accessible, interoperable, and reliable, I think. And the FAIR criteria are embedded in Start It. And there's also additional criteria about data, uh, the care principles, which are specific to data, which is connected to indigenous peoples. And both of these data standards attempt to sort of provide standard information saying, well, this is what's shared, and this is how it's shared. And that's something that, that started sort of building on to and working with those systems, which is, you know, if we're explaining why data is redacted, if it is, but if it isn't, this is how this data was collected, created, analyzed. Here's the raw data. And I think there's an interesting cultural thing here. Uh, if we're going back to use the word scientist and academia, there's this expression often of ivory towers. 
a very close friend of mine did a, a PhD in quantum chemistry. And I said, well, are you going to release all your data, you know, open access? And his response was, well, I don't want other people misinterpreting my data. And I can see both sides of this, but that isn't how science should work. The scientific method is different from scientific knowledge. And that's a really important point. There's what we know, you know, you could call that science, knowledge, you know, indigenous peoples around the world. I mean, I live in Australia. There are knowledge systems here that humans, Aboriginal peoples have been telling stories or sharing information for generations, you know, 30,000, maybe 40,000 years plus. That's science. That's knowledge. Yes. And then there's the scientific method, which is basically how do we ask a question? We've got a theory. How can we test it? Is it going to rain tomorrow? How can we answer that question? We can do this stuff. The point is that if the data collection and the analysis is opaque, that is, if, if it isn't clear where the data's come from and who's analyzed it, that isn't open science. And there's a lot of reasons people do keep that information closed, you know, commercial sensitivity, military research. And again, I'm not saying this is good or bad. It just is. This is how it is. But I think what's interesting about the open science movement is things like preprints, the idea of publishing something before it's been peer reviewed is a great innovation. I think the burden here for education systems, governments, the, the public, anyone involved in knowledge translation or science communication needs to help people understand the difference between peer review, expert review and public review. And they're all valid. The concern for me, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, is that there's also people who are easily exploited or or vulnerable people. You know, I used to work for a cancer charity in the UK, Macmillan Cancer Support. I used to go to a lot of events and, you know, there'd be maybe a stand by Cancer Research UK or or other, you know, really trusted, excellent organisations providing information. And then next to it, there might be somebody selling lumps of rose quartz crystals and saying something along the lines of this might help cure your cancer. And again, you know, we, we can apply the scientific method to that if we like. And I think we pretty much have done for that example. The point is there are people who, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's a terminal cancer diagnosis of someone they love or themselves, these people are vulnerable to exploitation. They may be desperate. Indeed. Of course, we've, we've all, we can all know what that feels like. Yes. Um, this is where we're getting into a moral responsibility for trusted information. And who does that fall with? I think in the UK, they do a very good job of providing trusted information. You know, the National Health Service, I think, is probably the best organization in the world for providing not only trusted information, but a clear process about how it was created, the sources, the references, and when it was last updated. And NHS Choices, that service is called. It's the first place I always go to. And also Wikipedia. I want to just take a moment to defend Wikipedia because I think there's still this kind of hangover from from its early days. You know, let's remember it's nearly 20 years old. And and there've been academic studies which have shown that the health information on Wikipedia is, is more accurate than other encyclopedias. The point of Wikipedia is that anyone can update the information and improve it. But the second that happens, there's a lot of people checking it. And you can also see who's updated it. And organizations such as Cochrane, and, and Cancer Research UK, just to name two of many, have partnerships with Wikipedia and they have Wikimedians in residence to make sure that the information on Wikipedia is trusted. One of the issues I have with how it works at the moment with Wikipedia, though, is that you can anonymously edit Wikipedia. And that's very important. I mean, especially remembering in some countries, it, it's illegal to even access Wikipedia or illegal to edit it. So it can, it can have very serious consequences if people are caught editing Wikipedia, as it were. So we need to maintain the ability for people to edit anonymously. However, if you're getting into trusted health information or other kinds of information, you know, climate change science, I want to know who's made that edit. 
And that's one of the things that we're doing with Stardit is, you know, whilst allowing the anonymity of editing, we're also allowing people to volunteer information about who edited it. So for example, I wrote a peer-reviewed article in the Wiki Journal of Medicine called What Are Systematic Reviews? And that was the first peer-reviewed journal article in the world to have a Stardit report about it. So you could see not only I wrote this article with a couple of other experts, but actually it was peer-reviewed by people who I consider have much more expertise in this field than I do. And as a result of their peer-reviewing the article, greatly improved it. And you can also see, you know, their affiliations, etc. Now that lets someone reading the article see, okay, these are experts. This is actually quite trustworthy. If we can begin to add machine learning to that, you know, start generating started reports with machine learning about information sources and start allowing search engines or other information funding tools to look for the data about the trustworthiness and for the information, you know, who conducted this systematic view, what's the quality of the data. We can begin to talk about how we'd automate that process. And I think that has enormous implications for commercial search engines and governments looking at communicating life and death information, and particularly in emergency situations. Uh, I did some work a few years ago with the World Health Organization looking at disaster communication. You know, how do you get important information out very quickly, you know, in the case of a tsunami or an earthquake warning, or in fact, immediately afterwards, don't drink the tap water, that kind of information. This is very difficult to do well, and I think we can do a lot better. So this is where I'd say to everyone listening, you know, it's, it's the responsibility of all of us to get involved. We can be passive consumers of information if we like. I'd like to encourage everyone to be, if not an active creator or co-creator, at the very least, an active appraiser. That is a very good message. Thank you, Jack. And this was very, very nice to hear, like all the things you said. And there are two points that my brain uh, has stuck. And the one is that you said the morality. So there are people who are releasing information and are, might be getting advantage of some people's situation for profit. And I think in order to battle that, we need to educate not only how to understand science, but how to be a moral person and have respect for the people around you. Because you live in a society and without that society, humans cannot survive. Humans, we are people who live in packs. There's a reason why we form societies. So it's important to learn uh, respect and morality. So we cannot only expect the public to assess what information is provided to them. We should also have morality on the information we produce and provide to the public. And the other thing you touched is about uh, some ethical restrictions. For example, when we talk about indigenous people, there are studies about indigenous people. We can't release a lot of information about their location because that might put them in danger especially if there are like small groups that are isolated in the forests or in areas and they didn't have a contact with Western world before. Like Then again, you mentioned medical research and collecting information, which might have some sensitive information and all that touched to ethical restrictions. And I wanted to ask who decides what is ethical and how can we decide that collectively? Because its country has its own regulations, its own standards. And therefore, this ethical aspect is different in different places. So how can we do that collectively? It's an excellent question. I've just spent the last few years doing a PhD in public health genomics, where you know, I've been working with different communities of shared interest, different groupings of people who have a shared interest in genomics research. And that includes people affected by rare diseases, people with shared ancestry, you know, that is, they, they all share the same sperm donor father, and indigenous peoples as well. And the question that came out of my PhD that I found most interesting was, 
who decides who decides what is ethical. There's an enormous amount of power in the ethics processes that we use culturally, whether it's part of government or, or academic research process. You know, and after the Second World War, a lot of very important declarations, Helsinki Declaration, etc., to try and protect people from research being done on people, not with them. And a lot of these ethical processes are excellent. You know, I've worked with the Health Research Authority in the UK to look at public involvement in these processes. But I think with everything, the question is always, how can we improve this? And that's what I think you've absolutely highlighted here very importantly, is that question of who decides, who decides what's ethical. Now, you talked about morality. And I'd say, actually, we're getting into the language again. But you might have a very different idea of what's moral than, than me. Neither of us is wrong or right. But as a species, we can come together and create things like the UN Declaration of Human Rights or the UN Declaration of Environmental Rights, if we want to zoom out from being humans for a bit and remember that we're part of a system that we are part of and sustains us and we destroy at our peril. These codified documents remind us that there are, you know, we can all agree on these things as a sort of a framework. They're helpful. I think they're great. How does that work in practice, though? And this is what I've been looking at with my PhD. And really, if we want to make sure that research is acceptable, ethically acceptable, good quality, relevant to the people who are participating, we need to involve them. One of the case studies of my PhD was working with the Esprit trial in Australia, where there were about 17,000 participants of a trial, and they were looking at the question, should we make this into a multi-generational research study? You know, should we recruit some of the offspring of these clinical trial participants and try and make this into a multi-generational study? They, they weren't sure what the participants would think. And of course, the obvious answer is, we'll ask them. And so we did this, we did telephone interviews, face-to-face -face events, and we asked them, you know, what are your preferences? Would you like to be involved? Would you like to be involved in decisions about data access? And yes, they did. Unanimously, people wanted to be involved. And, and people did want to have a say on, you know, who should access my data. And there have been a lot of studies around the world, specifically in genomics, looking at issues like who are trusted custodians of data. So generally, academic research institutions are quite trusted. Governments are somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I guess it depends on where you live. And at the bottom was commercial companies. And this is based on a genial study in Australia. And our data from this study aligned with that. So for me, the question isn't what sort of data access structure should we have? What ethics structure should we have? For me, the question is, how do we involve as many people as possible in these processes? How do we make sure they're inclusive, which includes supporting people who might not otherwise be able to get involved, financial support, educational interventions, making sure they're in multiple languages, multiple communication modes, face-to-face, -face, online, online discussions, surveys, podcasts. There's lots of different communication modes. And the challenge that researchers face, if I can use that label, you know, someone who's being paid to, you know, do a research study or set up a biobank, the challenge they face is if they ask the question, well, what's the best way to involve people? There's no evidence out there to answer that question because there's no data. And this is going back to the started point, which is you know, what I did with my PhD was with those four case studies was describe them all in that standardized way and say, you know, we involve people in this way. And we had these impacts. And then what we were able to show was, you know, involving people in using an online discussion, for example, allowed open-ended discussion and for them to raise questions that wouldn't have been possible in a survey where questions are fixed and they could raise issues or questions that researchers didn't think of. And that allows potential participants or the public to actually come up with ideas about how they'd like to be involved in research. And, you know, looking at genomics, I mean, there's a few examples around the world, uh, Genomics England and the UK Biobank, which has about half a million people's data and genomic data. 
these projects are going to last for decades, hopefully. And so the people whose data is being stored in these repositories need to be involved for decades. Perhaps their offspring do as well. When we're talking about indigenous peoples, and just to be precise on the language here, the United Nations uh, talks about indigenous peoples as being usually in countries where they are not the dominant culture. And so therefore, you know, may be more vulnerable to exploitation. Indigenous peoples around the world are at greater risk of being exploited by those in positions of power. And this is going back again to the question of funding research or what have you. And, you know, if the dominant culture wants to fund research on indigenous peoples rather than with them, that can be a big issue. And in Australia, for example, there's a history of, of frankly, bad research that's been done on Aboriginal people, basically anthropological research, asking questions of anthropology, not asking questions of health. And for those who aren't aware, the gap in life expectancy and other health outcomes in Australia between Aboriginal Australians and non-Aboriginal Australians is about 10 years. And that gap is not closing. And of course, it's a country with well-documented systemic racism that's happening today. So when I was working with the Post Centre for Indigenous Health, we went into an Aboriginal community in New South Wales. And one had to remember, one was coming in as a researcher representing this dominant culture. And you might be coming in with the best of interests, but you had to recognise right at the beginning there was a power dynamic there. And so the way we worked was very consciously trying to start a partnership from the beginning. So rather than going in and saying, we're going to do some research on you, we actually we said, we're thinking about possibly doing some research with you. This is what we're thinking. What do you think? How would you like to be involved in helping us co-create this research? So we've got a paper coming soon, which is about co-designing the process of setting up a project with Aboriginal peoples in New South Wales, looking at how to improve precision medicine. So here's another example of culture-induced ignorance. You know, if your ancestry, if your recent ancestry is European or Asian geographically, you are more likely to find genomic medicine useful because people from European and Asian ancestry are overrepresented in genomic databases. In other words, we have more DNA from people with European ancestry and Asian ancestry because those countries are generally richer and, and can afford to do that research. That's a very oversimplified explanation. And indigenous peoples around the world are underrepresented. So as a result, Asking questions like, will this chemotherapy be as effective for me? Or will this drug work on me? You know, pharmacogenomics, that sort of stuff. It's very difficult to answer those questions for Indigenous peoples. And so there's a risk in Australia, in particular, that genomic medicine might actually amplify what is already an enormous gap in life expectancy. And it might do that because of the legacy of what I'm calling bad research. And that's me in my own personal judgment of some of the research that's happened in Australia in the past in combination with systemic racism. So when we were working with these communities, there was a very interesting point where we were having discussions, and I'll keep it vague about who was saying what to who, but the issue of could DNA data collected for research purposes be used by law enforcement for criminal justice purposes? And the researchers were unable to give assurances that that wouldn't happen if there were sort of individuals that were potentially identifiable. So that created this balance between, okay, we'll have much better quality data for precision medicine if we have individual genome sequence, as opposed to all the risk to these individuals of as vulnerable or exploited people. In a country where, you know, Aboriginal deaths in police custody, for example, are greatly higher than non-Aboriginal deaths in police custody. This is a very serious issue. And again, I'm not trying to say there are good guys and bad guys here. I'm trying to answer your question, you know, how do you balance the needs of doing good quality research with the preferences of those people you're doing research with? 
And the short answer is there is no short answer. You need to co-design how you plan on involving people. You can't just say, well, we had a meeting on a Tuesday afternoon in Sydney. No one from the community showed up. The fact that it's 500 kilometers away and we didn't offer any transport expenses is recorded in our Stardit report. You know, somebody could look at that Stardit report of involvement and critically appraise that and go, well, I don't think you took reasonable measures to involve potential participants. On the other hand, if you actually demonstrate, okay, we worked with the community to co-design a strategy for involving them at every stage, including as data custodians, including as being members of you know, ethics committees or data access committees, you know, committees that decide who gets access to the data and who doesn't. And you can actually ask their preferences and then ensure that that's what happens. You can, you know, so what we've done with this study is we've published the Stardit report where we're saying this is how we plan to involve people. So it's a kind of a protocol. And then there's an accountability there. There's something in the public domain that as that research study progresses, you know, those people can say, well, this is what you said you were going to do. And there's accountability there that's two-way. And in some ways, that power dynamic is shared, I think, in a more practical way. You know, Startup isn't the answer to everything. There's enormous issues around, you know, is it an accessible system? Is it practical for people to be able to edit it, et cetera? Those are questions for us to keep on trying to ask as we build version one and et cetera. And, and those questions we need to keep asking. In summary, there is no wrong or right. There is no good or bad. As Shakespeare said, for there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And for me, in summary, this is where public involvement, this is where democracy, whatever you want to call it, the idea of sharing power is as many people as possible are involved in answering the question, is this acceptable? Is it ethically acceptable? Is it morally acceptable? Can we do better? Is this scientifically rigorous? Is this data useful? How should we share this data? How should we analyze it? The more people you involve, the more likely it is to improve every aspect of that research. Indeed. And I think such a key takeaway, like one of the key takeaways for me, definitely from everything you said, has also been that people really want to be involved. They want to be involved in, like, as you said, they unanimously said, yes, we want to be involved in who gets to access the data and these things. And I absolutely love that then you're also involving people in the full designing process and kind of bringing the power and therefore also the trust back to the public and kind of, or trust in science rather to the public. So really Yeah, fantastic. and I think that's what's really interesting about genomics i mean i chose to do my phd on public involvement in genomics because it's the most complicated place i could imagine doing it i mean you said earlier that we're all a community or humans make communities and i think the great thing about genomics for me is that it reminds us that you know we're 99.9 .9 similar our dna is shared between all of us i mean in biological terms the human race is frankly inbred i mean there's more genetic diversity between any chimpanzee than there is between every human being we're all very similar we share a lot of dna of course, we are all as well, all individuals. And so it's that question of, in order to understand each of us, we need as much data as possible from as many people as possible. That's how genomic medicine works and, and other applications of genomics. It requires us to work together. It asks about concepts about solidarity. I w ended up working with, with my own family as one of my case studies, actually. I mean, this is I'll give you the shortened version of the story. But after starting my PhD, I thought I'd better get a bit of personal experience of doing a DNA test. So we ended up getting one for my mum for her birthday. And unexpectedly, she found out she was conceived by a sperm donor. And that actually, that sperm donor fathered somewhere between 600 and 1,000 other offspring. And we, I had no idea about this before starting my PhD in public involvement in genomics. And suddenly, I find myself part of probably one of, well, what I hope is one of the largest single ancestor cohorts on Earth. I mean, there may be many undiscovered ones, and there almost certainly are. 
the issue is, of course, you know, all these people are half siblings, you know, and I've got a lot of half cousins. Now, this asks some very interesting questions because if, for example, you find there's a variation of no significance for one of those siblings, you know, it might be that that has implications for all the others. So there's, there's ethical questions here about the right not to know. You know, I don't want to know about this information. And this came up with the Esprit study as well. You know, the, the consent processes that we design need to give an opportunity for, you know, you basically ask people, if we find out something, would you like to know? And there's a lot of very complicated ways you can do that. And it's sometimes called dynamic consent. In other words, the idea is that that can change, but it's about asking people what they'd like to know. And generally, you know, most people in the research I did wanted to have their own DNA data and wanted to know that stuff. But there were very serious implications for them wanting certain people not to know certain things. For example, the community of people affected by rare diseases that I work with, we had to use an online discussion platform that was hosted by La Trobe University. It was secure. And in some cases, they chose to use pseudonyms because they were genuinely concerned if insurance companies found out that they had this rare disease, they wouldn't be able to get life insurance or health insurance for themselves or for their offspring. And they didn't want that information being in the public domain. And so there's very understandable scenarios where people want data redacted. And you know this is the challenge of genomics research. Who decides when data gets redacted? In another area I'm working in, talking about data redaction on just a serious note is endangered species. Science for is running a project called Wild DNA, and we go out and collect environmental DNA samples to try and find where endangered species are living. But the example I'd give would be if you've got real-time location data for rhinos, that's great if you're a ranger, not so great if it's a poacher who has that information. So there's certain data that we need certain people to have and that we need to redact and, you know, the question that we've tried to answer with Starda is not only who decides that, but how do we describe that redaction process? How do we describe how power was shared so that there isn't this kind of, oh, well, you've not shared this data with me or this isn't in the public domain, so we're not going to trust this. That there's actually a demonstrable process for deciding how data is redacted. And I think that is my answer to the open science question of what should be redacted and what shouldn't is let's ask as many people as possible. But it's not a simple one. And that's why we need to involve as many people as possible in trying to answer it. And I like what you described now about there is information that some people want to keep because they're afraid that it will implicate other things in their life, like getting a life insurance or fortune. So I was wondering that one way to help encourage people to allow important information being released or approving their information to be released is to ensure that they will be protected in other ways. So maybe one thing for institutions and societies to work on is how to help people who might have a disease to still have a health insurance and not have to spend the rest of their lives spending a lot of money they don't have for their health instead of their health being covered and protected by an insurance or ensure that poaching is not a hobby anymore and it's something that you shouldn't do. There's no reason to kill an animal for fun. So I think it's good for the society to, to work on that so that people feel secure, but also at the same time, the environment is secured. And then maybe the question of people who get involved liking or not to release their information or important information that might help in that medical research will not be that much of an obstacle. 
think there's there's two interesting things there. I mean, I'm proud to say one of my PhD supervisors, Paul Lacaz, has been involved with other people in getting the Australian government to relook at legislation around using genetic data in health and life insurance and, you know, getting a moratorium on that as there is in other countries. Because basically, we don't really know what we're talking about when it comes to DNA, quite frankly. We're really just at the very earliest stages. You know, each country has different health systems, different legislations. And so that's, again, looking at the interests and the power of those making those decisions and reminding everyone that ideally, you know, your elected representatives are representing your interests, not their own. The second point, whether it's poaching or just eating your dinner or drinking a cup of tea and eating a biscuit and sitting on your sofa, as I like to do, at the moment, I find it very difficult to answer the question, has my tea contributed to rainforest destruction? Has the cocoa from this chocolate biscuit been picked by slaves and contributed to rainforest destruction? Is the timber in my sofa sustainably harvested or is it illegally harvested hardwood that's contributed to destruction of irreplaceable ecosystems? I can't answer these questions because the data isn't available. And it probably isn't available because there are people who have interests who maybe don't want that data to be available. Or frankly, no one's funding people to go out and collect that data. And I think that's one of the dreams of something like Stardit as well, is that we can start to share this information so that at the very least we can make informed decisions. You know, this fish I'm eating has been farmed ethically and harvested ethically and, and died well and lived well, as has this meat, perhaps, for those who choose to eat meat. Or, you know, this vegetable has not had these chemicals put on it. And I know that. And it hasn't, the farming method hasn't contributed to soil degradation. I think some estimates are that we've got 100 harvests left in Europe before the soil is degraded permanently. A hundred harvests. What are we doing? <laughs> we all are going to be responsible for our actions. And it's very difficult to make informed decisions that align with our values or our morals or our ethics because the data isn't there. And I think whether it's Forest Stewardship Council or the Marine Stewardship Council, you know, they do a good job, but they're also industry bodies that are self-regulated. I mean, let's remember that. Might there be conflicting or competing interests here? Possibly. Let's get as much data as possible just out there and open. This is where we're getting into territory of whistleblowing sometimes too. And it has a very important function in a functioning democracy. We've talked about science communicators and journalists. We need these people. We haven't quite figured out how we pay them, journalists and science communicators yet. And, and that's an issue too. So all these things are interconnected. I'm not going to sit here and try and solve them all. I worry about them all a lot. But I'm glad that podcasts like this exist. It's fantastic that Cochrane is working with the Science Basement to talk about these issues. And I really invite comments and feedback from anyone who's listening to this. And if you would like to get involved in Stardit in particular, you can go to scienceforall.world forward slash Stardit. That's just spelled S-T-A-R-D-I-T. I've really enjoyed this whole conversation. And I think my conclusion is I'm not an expert, but I think that the only thing we can really do is try and involve as many people as possible in trying to answer these questions. And where possible, do that in an evidence-informed way. But first of all, we've got to get the data. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. And thank you very much for bringing it up. And also, I want to say, like, I'm also very aware of everything I have and I use and where it has come from. And even when I try to search to find that information, Companies might say this is ethical cotton, but then when you try to find out more about it, then you don't have all the information behind it. So you can't confirm whether it is indeed ethical. And I think it's also that regulation should come and ensure because now you have all these more sustainably produced products that are also more expensive, so people cannot afford. 
So even if someone wants to become sustainable and wants to investigate and find the information about whether something is environmentally friendly, et cetera, et cetera, then they might not be able to afford it or find that information. And I think that's where we need to work collectively to ensure that companies, they want to profit. Of course, that's understandable. They want to be financially sustainable. That's understandable. But at the same time, people need to know exactly everything. Seeing beyond that, because we have been talking for quite a while, and I think one of the things that I want to go a bit back to the main topic we have, which is how like people can assess information. And I wanted to say that during the times we are living now, there is an overwhelming flow of new information on coronavirus, either exciting scientific news about the sun and its activity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And then the media often use these grand or very scary words to advertise the news headline, and they are building a feeling of fear and mistrust, I feel. So how can or should the audience react when they hear about these scientific headlines in the media? And what is the responsibility of the media? You touched a little bit about it, but I wanted to maybe see it from the audience perspective. Well, being British, the concept of responsible media is a bit of an oxymoron in many contexts. Perhaps that's a little unfair. There's an excellent book called Factfulness by the late Hans Rosling, and it talks about this. I mean, how many headlines do we read about how many successful flights landed today? I mean, of course, the numbers are slightly lower than normal at the moment, but the headline is always the plane crash. And the reason we don't have many plane crashes is because there's standardized data on sharing information about every air crash in the world, wherever it is, whatever happens, that data is shared in a standardized way. And that actually was set up in the 60s. And that's probably saved thousands of lives and prevented multiple crashes. The media doesn't report the safe landings because that isn't human nature. And what we're dealing with here, I mean, and I'm getting very out of my area of expertise, but we're dealing with the structure of the brain. We're dealing with the fear response. And media, if it is for-profit media that, you know, relies on adverts and revenue that clicks, whatever, it has a perverse incentive to focus on the stories that are going to trigger the fear response. And this is just a fact. So we need to ask as a species, you know, how are we getting our information? Where are we getting it from? And I'm just going to put my hand up and say, just go to Wikipedia. I would like to be an advocate of a new verb, which is I Wikipedia'd it instead of I Googled it. And I will defend Wikipedia. I mean, of course, there are errors. But if you find one, go and correct it. You know, that's the point. And I think certainly in the COVID pandemic, a lot of people were saying, you know, where's a really good place to get up to date COVID information? Um, actually, the Wikipedia page was and is very well updated and accurate and a good place to get trusted information. And, and you know, Cochrane, with its ambition to be the home of trusted evidence, there's a great potential for Cochrane and Wikipedia to work together, you know, and possibly even using something like Stardit in the future to help this all happen in more of an automated way. But I think you're right. We need to think about the general populations and to make it as easy as possible to get trusted information. Because we've got people growing up now who actually don't use the World Wide Web to be specific. The internet, the telecommunication system that we use to share data is one thing, but the World Wide Web Protocol, you know, getting stuff, information from websites, that's what my generation did growing up in the, you know, in the 90s. But now it's all apps or other platforms, and it's much easier to control news feeds, data feeds, if you are inside someone else's system. And, you know, just look at ex-presidents attempting to set up their own social media networks and, you know, these echo chambers and bubbles they're only going to get bigger and more specialized. 
And I think the real thing we all need to ask ourselves is, where am I getting my information from? It's very much like your food. You know, where am I getting my food? How has it been produced? Am I happy with how it's been produced? As consumers, if we can use that word, you know, consumers of food or consumers of information, we need to take an active role in appraising where it's come from. And that's a skill. If I had to say the most important thing every curriculum in the world should be including is that skill. And of course, how do we actually educate those people in the most effective way? Well, that's a question for a systematic review, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps, who knows? But that's a good point. I like what you said. That's the message I think people should keep today, that it's like your food. Ask where that information is coming from. Don't just trust it. Really question. It's key. But I see we have been talking and we have kept you for quite a long time. So maybe we I think can... more accurately, uh, I've kept you. <laughs> But it was so interesting. It was such a pleasure to listen to you. And I think you shared so many fruitful information. I'm sure, Katya, you probably agree. Yes. Been... yes. I've been taking plenty of notes and bullet points. And actually, the thank you for the re book recommendation. We'll definitely have to check factfulness out. Yeah, oh, must uh, the most important book written this millennium. Absolutely. Brilliant book. That's cool. We'll have we have a, a book club at the Science Basement, so maybe we can include it in our uh, reading list uh, Absolutely. Uh, for yeah. the future. Thank it you. It literally Definitely. made me uh, laugh and cry. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah. looking forward to it. If you'd like to learn more about some of the work that we're doing at Science for All, you can go to scienceforall.world. If you want to find me on a social media website called Twitter, my handle is at Jack Nunn, N for November, U double N. There's lots of other social media links and contact details at the Science for All website. If you'd like to learn more about Cochrane, you can go to cochrane.org. That's C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E.org. And that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. Thank you very much, Jack, for joining us today. And to you, our listeners, and stay tuned for the next episode. The Science If you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This episode was done in conjunction with the Cochrane Institute. For more information about them or to look at their systematic reviews, please visit www.cochrane.org. The opinions Jack said in this episode are his own and do not represent the views of the Cochrane Institute. This podcast was produced by the Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.